All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the midweek Wednesday night here at Living Truth. We're glad you're here. We are in Psalm 24. We are going to look at the final of the three shepherd psalms, Psalm 24, a beautiful, powerful psalm. So let's go there, Psalm 24. And uh, as we did last time, we don't always do this with the psalms, but I think this is worth us reading together. And uh, if you're able to stand, would you stand with us for the reading of God's word? Psalm 24, we're going to read the whole psalm together, Psalm 24. It reads this way, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. And then it ends with Selah. All right, you may be seated. Father, thank you so much for this majestic psalm. Uh, it is the third in a trilogy of shepherd psalms all about the Messiah and his work and even the future in him. And we are grateful for it. And we pray it would thrill our hearts. It would encourage our souls it would bless your people. It would draw those who don't know you to you for hope. And Lord, when we think about the, the fact that we just were seeing a repetition that you are the king of glory, strong and mighty. You're the one we look to tonight. You are our savior, our God, our king. You are the glorious one. We lay this time at your feet that you might be glorified in it. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, if you have joined us recently for teaching in the Shepherd Psalms, the Shepherd Psalms are considered to be 22, 23, and 24. Psalms 22, 23, 24. I gave you three S headings for the Psalms. In Psalm 22, you see the Savior. They're all called Messianic Psalms, so they have to do with the Messiah or the coming Savior. Savior in Psalm 22, Shepherd in Psalm 23, Sovereign in Psalm 24. So I hope you were with us as we got a chance to look at the previous two psalms. Last time we were together, we looked at the beautiful Psalm 23. It ended this way. Surely, Psalm 23, 6, goodness and loving kindness, says David, will follow me all the days of my life, my earthly life. And in addition to that, I will dwell in the house of the Lord and all God's people said forever. Now, within Psalm 24, there's going to be a question that gets answered, and it's this question, how do you end up in that place? How can you or I ascend that holy hill knowing that God is holy and powerful and dwells 
as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, an unapproachable light, that he is majestic in his holiness. How could I ascend that holy hill? How is it that I could dwell in that house forever? What would make me worthy of that? And we're going to answer that question tonight as we delve into Psalm 24 and look at the final leg of the shepherd psalms. This has been called the, uh, a royal psalm because it does talk about the uh, royalty of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's also considered the song of ascension because it does depict the Lord going up, if you will, or going up into the gates. And the backdrop of this particular psalm is 2 Samuel chapter 6. And there we have a story about when David brought the ark into the holy city. And this is actually, if you do a little research on Psalm 24, there are many commentators that believe that the backdrop of the writing of this psalm, and remember, every psalm that we study is a song that was sung somewhere along the way. And these, all three of these psalms penned by David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, and they believe it was penned and sung as the ark came in to the holy city. Now, the ark of the covenant was that uh, treasure. Uh, uh, it was the, the box and it was overlaid with gold. And it was something that was treasured within Israel. And it represented really the presence of God or the throne of God. And it was the only piece of furniture that was actually behind the veil behind the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and many of you have only seen a picture of this in Indiana Jones with the two angels' wings touching, but maybe you've seen some other uh, depictions. I remember one time I got a chance to go to a rabbi's house and he had an actual Ark of the Covenant. I've had a chance to go to Israel a couple times and I've seen some you know, copies of the Ark of the Covenant, some, some really well done ones. But the only person that really got to interact with that piece of furniture, if I can put it that way, was the high priest, and only that once a year. And he would go in on something that we acknowledged last Sunday, which was the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. Kippur is a word from Hebrew that comes from the idea of kafar, and it literally means to cover. So whenever you think of the idea of atonement, Atonement is to cover us, to cover our sins and transgressions. Within the uh, Ark of the Covenant, they ultimately placed the Ten Commandments. And uh, they had, there was three different things in there. There was Aaron's rod that had budded. And there was also, can you name the third thing that was placed in, within the Ark? It was a jar of manicotti. No, manna. Uh, and those things that were within the Ark. And some, some scholars have pointed out that if you see the Ten Commandments within the, the chest or, or the, the, the ark that testify against us on top of where the two angels' wings touch is considered the mercy seat. In Romans 3.25, Jesus Christ is actually called our mercy seat or our seat of mercy. And what the high priest would do once a year on Yom Kippur is he would confess the sins of the nation and they would have two goats. One goat was called the scapegoat. And what would happen is the high priest would be dressed in white. He would lay his hands on top of the head of the scapegoat, confess the sins of the nation. 
and they, they would let the scapegoat go away and it would go into the wilderness. But they say in Jewish tradition that the scapegoat tended to come back to the place from which it was sent, almost like your dog or cat finds its way back home. And so they began a tradition where they had to have someone standing kind of at the brow of a hill. And when the scapegoat would be prayed, and the, it was kind of like this idea, symbolically at least, of transference of sins from the nation and the high priest to the goat, the scapegoat would go off into the wilderness, and it was supposed to be a picture of him carrying our sins away, and, or Israel's sins in this case. And literally, the word for forgiveness in your New Testament literally has the idea of to have your sins carried away. In fact, we have it in one of the Psalms, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he, what, removed our transgressions from us. And so this becomes a picture. Now, when Jesus was in Nazareth, this is really interesting, in Luke chapter 4, he goes in and he reads the scroll of Isaiah. He's reading from Isaiah 61. And he, he says, uh, the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, etc. And he says, today in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. And some of the people, as Jesus began, uh, continued to speak, they got unhappy with some of his words. And they took him to a brow of a hill to throw him off the hill. Now let me go back to the picture I was telling you about the scapegoat. The scapegoat had a tendency to come back. So they would position someone at the brow of the hill. And when the scapegoat got to that person, he would literally take the goat and throw it off the hill to ensure that it would not come back representing bringing back all the sins of the people back into the temple area. So they would throw the goat off the hill, the scapegoat. Get this. Jesus is in his hometown, and after he said some hard things and he said, I'm the Messiah, they brought him to the brow of a hill. They intended to throw him off the hill in fulfillment of the imagery of the scapegoat. And because he would not die that way, because he would die on a cross, that's how God had planned the whole thing, it simply says that he simply just passed by and got away from the mob. Isn't that interesting? This is, this is the idea of the Day of Atonement and the significance of this piece of furniture known as the Ark of the Covenant. The law testifies against us. The law's charging us, but the mercy seat that gets ultimately sprinkled with the blood of a second goat, one gets sent off, a second goat dies, the high priest goes in and he sprinkles the blood and uh, that's how it go, the blood goes on top of the mercy seat and so forth. Now, I, I mentioned to you the backdrop. I want you to hold your place in Psalm 24 and turn over to 2 Samuel <clears throat> chapter 6. First five books of Moses, Joshua, then Joshua judges Ruth, then First and 2 Samuel. Okay, so we're going back a little bit in our Bibles. I want you to see uh, many of the Psalms have uh, a, a backdrop, uh, um, an occurrence on which from which they were penned. And this is one that we have a pretty decent idea. And here's what it says. This is 2 Samuel 6, 3. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and 
Ohio, <laughs> close enough, the sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart. And so they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, 2 Samuel 6, 4. And Ohio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. So the ark represents his presence with all kinds of instruments made of fir, fir wood, with uh, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, let me just pause here. Um, there's an interesting thing just to, for an insight from a Hebrew uh, perspective. Hebrew words have pictures associated with them because Hebrew letters actually are pictorial. And see that, that idea of a threshing floor? Holiness, get this, the word holiness in Hebrew is what comes out of the threshing floor. Now, what they do when they thresh wheat is they separate the wheat from the what? The chaff. So what they'll do is they'll go up typically on a high mountain on a windy day and they throw the wheat kernels up in the air and the chaff is light or yes, yeah, lighter than the wheat. And so the wind uh, will blow the chaff away and then the wheat is the only thing that remains. Holiness is what happens after the threshing floor. It's when God separates the wheat from the chaff. And one of the ways that he endeavors to make us holy is by getting the chaff or the junk out of our lives. Can I get a witness, anybody? <laughs> right? We go through the refiner's fire. He separates the wheat from the chaff. You, you get the idea. So Uzzah reached out, middle of six, toward the ark. He took hold of it for the oxen nearly upset it. So the idea is it almost fell over. So Uzzah reached out to grab it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. We'll come back to that in a moment. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, this story of Uzzah, if, you were, if you've been with us at Living Truth for a while, I've taught through First and Second Samuel. And here's what happened with Uzzah. Uzzah's actions in and of themselves were commendable, you could say, even. But here's the problem. There was a certain way the ark was to be moved. It's all spelled out in the Old Testament, and they did not pay attention to it. It was only to be carried by priests. It was to be carried on poles. It was not to be touched. It certainly was not to be handled by a common person. There's scriptures that have the idea of not even looking at it. And so they, they were carrying it the wrong way, and they were not to have it on a cart. That's the way pagans move things, not... God's people were supposed to carry this thing on poles and on their shoulders. They disobeyed God, so God killed Uzzah. And Uzzah lay dead right in front of the ark. Now, they were having a party and a celebration. You can imagine. There's David dancing before the ark. They're all excited to bring the ark into the city of God. And God says, zap, Uzzah dead. <laughs> right? 
And, and David was like, whoa. And it's one of those ideas that we need to understand in Scripture that God is holy, that when he spells something out, you're not only to do God's work, but you're to do God's work God's way. He's not to be trifled with. And when they didn't handle the most important, holy piece of furniture that represented the very presence of God and the mercy seat of God, God killed this guy. Now, with that in mind, I want you to turn back to Psalm 24 because what you're going to see is David in the third of these three shepherd psalms is laying out this idea of going up and who can ascend the hill of God. How, how can I be right before God if this is who God is? We'll get to that, but let's go back to the beginning just for a second. I gave you the backdrop. I told you a little bit about the psalm. It opens with the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, Psalm 24, 1, the world and those who dwell in it. If you're uh, taking notes and you like to do headings, three major sections. The first is praise to God who is the creator and sovereign of the world, or you could just write his universal dominion. His universal dominion. God is sovereign over everything. The earth, the planet we live on, is whose? It's the Lord's. And how much? And all that it contains, and just in case we missed it, the world and the people too, those who dwell in it. This is a declaration. The world is the Lord's. Psalm 50, 10 and 11 says, Every beast of the forest is mine, God speaking, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, everything that moves in the field is mine. Ezekiel 18, 2 says, All souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul whose sins will die. It's funny, when little kids are growing up, they like to say, Mine, mine, mine. Mine! And we saw a debate last night that sounded a lot like that. Mine! 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 I'm not going to let you talk. It's mine! And God says, hey, I got news for you. It's mine. See, all this stuff, the planet you walking on, the air you're breathing, the dirt you walk on, the water you drink, the air you breathe, the circulatory system that you don't got to think about that's pumping blood through your organs and veins and so forth and so on. Eyes you can look out through, a nose that you can smell through, taste buds. Can I get a witness? Taste buds. He didn't have to give us taste buds, but he did. Praise the Lord. And God says, mine, mine, mine. Not yours. And if you want to know the biblical term for this idea, it's that you and I are stewards. A steward is someone who manages somebody else's stuff. And by the way, everything, that includes your possessions, your children, your spouse, everything you have is simply on loan. And you're going to have it for whatever time God gives it to you, and then you're not. This world is not yours. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. It's all his. And once you have that worldview certain in your heart, it will take care of a lot of problems. 
Because when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and you understand that everything you have here is just simply on loan, the breath in your lungs, etc., etc., you don't freak out about every single little thing that you're trying to control. Mine! 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 Nope. Ain't yours. It just ain't. You're going to leave it to somebody else. And so the more that we can just have our hands open to the ultimate sovereign, the better off we will be. Now on a positive side, listen to Isaiah 43.1. Now says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I love that. That's Isaiah 43.1. And the Lord has claimed us for his own so on the positive side, we've been adopted into God's forever family. Praise the Lord. And all that is his actually is mine. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Okay, but I realize that the only reason I'm going to be a co-heir with Christ is because I've been redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Right? Amen. How would you answer this question? The earth is whose? If you can answer that the earth is the Lord's, then you have what we would call a biblical worldview. Just think for a moment. Think about the average citizen out there somewhere tonight. What do you think they think about this? Now we hear people talking about Mother Earth and we hear people talking about, you know, uh, humanism thinks that the center of everything is man. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And it gets proven thousands of times a day as man perishes and God remains. He, God, the reason we could say that the earth is the Lord's and all it contains is because he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The reason that the earth belongs to God is because God made the earth. He founded it. He's the founder of the company, <laughs> and he established it. And Colossians 1 says he also sustains it by the word of his power. I was out playing golf one day, which I do fairly regularly, and I got a chance to meet a new guy, and we, we ended up playing together. And I asked him about, you know, just where he was spiritually, and he said, you know, uh, I'm not quite sure and I said, do you believe there's a creator? Can you look all around and believe this happened by chance? And he goes, no. He goes, there's got to be a supreme being. Look at all this design. Look at our eyes, our bodies. Look at nature. Look at all the species. There's got to be a supreme being. I said, did you know that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ, the baby that was born in Bethlehem, and I think it was coming close to Christmas when I was interacting with this guy, that, that baby who was born in Bethlehem, the Bible says that he's the creator. Did you know that the creator is also the savior of the world? And he, he was a little bit taken back by it. I said, the Bible teaches that Jesus made everything. In fact, it says all things were created by him and for him. And without him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life. And that life is the light of men. So he was thinking. 
And I think it's an interesting one-two punch to kind of argue from how the creation testifies that there's a creator and then go right to Jesus. By the way, the creator is Jesus. All things were created by him, for him, through him. If you're interested on more on that, Genesis 1, 1 through 3, John 1, 1 through 5, and Colossians 1, 15 through 18. This founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, this poetic language, but it goes back to this idea of Genesis. So go back just for a moment because I want to just show you really quick where the language comes from. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created, oh, you got to know it. What did he make? The heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. If you're having problems finding Genesis 1, 1, we have a class for you. <laughs> the darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And uh, God then declares stuff about light, which you've read. Let's go down just for our study. After the second day, it says, God said, 9, Genesis 1, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. And the, let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. This was caused, says MacArthur, by a tremendous cataclysmic upheaval of earth's surface and the rising and sinking of the land, which caused the waters to plunge into the low places, forming the seas, the continents, and the islands, the rivers, and the lakes. Amazing. Job 38.8 says, Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, I placed boundaries on it, God speaking, Job 38.10. I set a bolt and doors. It's poetic, but... It's God as creator. And I said, thus far you shall come, ocean, no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Job 38, 8 through 11. When Jesus was in his earthly ministry, one of the miracles that he did over nature, if you go back to Psalm 24, is he quieted the sea. He hushed the storm. He said to it, peace, be still. And the storm went, okay. <laughs> And the disciples said, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And the Bible says they worshiped him. See, they knew that this language was about God, that only God had the power to still the sea. It's just another evidence in the New Testament that Jesus is God you know, I know sometimes people say, well, there's not a ton of verses directly saying Jesus is God. There's enough. But there's other verses that clearly declare he's God by the powerful signs that he does, which that add layers to the ones that declare that he is God directly. Amen. Psalm 33, 6 says, The word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. 
He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. When God did the miracle of the crossing of the Jordan River in Joshua uh, 3 and 4, it says that the river was at flood stage. And if you look at the topography of the land at that time, flood stage meant the priests who were carrying the ark, if they took one step into the water, they probably would be in over their head, literally. And when God did that miracle, it actually says that he stopped the river so that the waters were in a heap. He actually like put a pause on the rushing river and held the waters until probably more than a million people crossed into Jericho. That's the power of God. Let me just ask you, is that your God? Is that who you believe that God the Son is when he entered into the world and he was God in human flesh? That's what the Bible teaches us, that our God is powerful and majestic. More could be said, but let's go to the second heading that I'd like to give you. We talked about God's sovereign control over the world. The question, who can approach the Lord and stand before him? In light of who he is, Psalm 24, verse 3, we might ask the question, this powerful being who says light be and light is and separates dry land from seas and has this cataclysmic power and can speak creation into existence, what's called ex nihilo, out of nothing. You don't have to borrow the matter. He created that too. What kind of being are we dealing with? And if this is who he is, how might I hang out with him? <laughs> Sorry to put it that way, but you get what I'm saying. How could I stand before him in his presence if that's who we're dealing with here? A God this powerful. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Remember, David is our author. Who may stand in his holy place? Now, I gave you the backdrop of 2 Samuel 6, so you could see that when David wrote this song, and maybe he wrote it in the aftermath of the Uzzah incident in 2 Samuel 6, this is part of what I think David is getting at. He watches God kill Uzzah because they do everything wrong with the ark. And David might be saying, here's the sweet psalmist of Israel, a man after God's own heart, someone who probably knew the Lord as well as anybody maybe in history. And he said, I don't, I'm afraid. I'm angry, I'm afraid. Maybe I don't fully understand who this God is. And I'm afraid to take this ark to myself because I don't know what's gonna happen. Now, we know that they handled it wrong in terms of moving the ark, but I think that is the issue before us. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? This is Spurgeon. It is uphill work for the creature to reach the creator. <laughs> Where is the mighty climber who can scale the towering heights? Nor is it height alone, it is glory too. Whose eye shall see the king in his beauty and dwell in his palace? In heaven he reigns most gloriously. Who shall be permitted to enter into his royal presence? God has made all, but he will not save all. There is a chosen company who shall have the singular honor of dwelling with him in his high abode. These choice spirits desire to commune with God and their wish shall be granted them. The solemn inquiry of the text is repeated in another form. Who shall be able to stand or continue there? Who casteth away the wicked? Who then can abide in his house? 
Who is he that can gaze upon the Holy One and can abide in the blaze of glory, of his glory, says Spurgeon? Certainly none may venture to commune with God upon the footing of the law, but grace can make us meet to behold the vision of the divine presence. The question before us is one which all should ask for themselves and none should be at ease till they have received an answer of peace. With careful self-examination, let us inquire. Spurgeon, in his typical, beautiful style, says, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? In the book of Jude, which is just one chapter, Jude celebrates with what's called a benediction, like a closing prayer. He says, Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, Jude 24, and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. We're going to stand before God, Jude 24, one day blameless with great joy. See, that's the only way we're going to ascend the hill of the Lord. Amen is we're going to be cloaked in the righteousness of the Messiah. And this is a messianic psalm. It's about the Messiah. Now, a close cousin to this psalm is Psalm 15. Just flip back just a few pages, Psalm 15. Same question is asked, same author. It's a psalm of David. It's five short verses, and it says... O Lord, who may abide in thy tent, a psalm of David, Psalm 15, who may dwell on thy holy hill, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness, speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Back to Psalm 24. And David, kind of repeating this idea of who can ascend the hill, he says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, Psalm 24, 4, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn deceitfully. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, the pure in heart shall see God. However, I don't know if you noticed this, but I think we're all in some trouble. Because I don't know about you, but having clean hands and a pure heart has not been the story of my entire life. How about yours? We just sang a song, and it's a good song. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not give our soul to another, which I think comes from these psalms. But notice what the singer is saying. He's saying, give it to us because from within my own strength, it ain't there. Now, you might say, well, it's getting better. <laughs> uh, you might be singing with the Beatles. Is it, was it the Beatles? It's getting better all the time. Better, better, better. Sorry. But anyway, <laughs> but... But even though it's better, it's not where it needs to be. In fact, I often look at my own heart and say, like Jeremiah, my heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
See, the moment you think you got it together, just take a look within. <laughs> I want clean hands. I want a pure heart. I don't want to lift up my soul to falsehood, but I don't want to have ever sworn to anything deceitfully. But have you ever got backed into a corner and told a lie? Whoops. <laughs> As a Christian? Yeah, probably. You ever said something that you shouldn't have said about somebody that you were speaking about? Maybe you twisted a story in your direction. Look at Psalm 25, 1 and 2. It says, To thee, O Lord, just the very next Psalm 25, 1, To thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul, O my God, in thee I trust. Don't let me be ashamed. Don't let my enemies exult over me. The writer of Hebrews says, Without holiness we will not see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. And I will tell you, that I think part of this is to see that God expects us to be practically holy. But ultimately, my holiness, the reason I'm going to ascend that hill one day and stand blameless before this God who spoke the universe into existence is because I have the righteousness of Christ who was without sin, who was blameless. His righteousness has been transferred to my account and this is where we get the idea of imputed righteousness, right? We talk about the gospel. We talk about the exchange of my sin going to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness coming to me when I trust in him. Praise the Lord. But your practical holiness, so positionally right now, you can't get any more right with God than you are right now because you come on the merits of Christ, right? So because you are in Christ, you can't be any more right with God, any more blameless than you are now, positionally. But practically, could you get holier? Yeah. Could I get holier? Yes. Could we try to catch up, and we're never going to be there perfectly, but get more practically how we are positionally? God says, be holy for I am holy. And so we got to make sure we got this order correct we're going to ascend that hill because of the merits of Christ. But anyone who knows Jesus is going to be outwardly showing signs that they know the Holy One. You understand what I'm saying? There's going to be some practical signs that you've had an encounter with God. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere, sincere faith. Um. Ephesians 4.24 says, Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God, Ephesians 4.24, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. I need a spiritual makeover every single day. And I tell you, as I have grown as a Christian, um, there's things that I never even thought about that now I measure myself against because I know about them now. Anybody with me? And so it's kind of like there's a different uh, standard and there's a different way that I measure my actions in my heart that have ramped up the level by which I'm trying to live. And I, I think when we get a, a more of a handle on who God is, we're all always seeing our need to ask him to help us to be holy. 
to put on the armor of God, to put on the new man, to be practically what we are positionally, but not to switch those, not to think that we're going to get into heaven because we're that pure, because nobody's going to make it on their good works. Now, this person who is purified, he shall receive a blessing 24-5 from the Lord. And here I think we have a hint of imputed righteousness and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Spurgeon again, they do not ascend the hill of the Lord as givers, but as receivers. They do not wear their own merits, but a righteousness which they have received, those who ascend this holy hill. Holy living ensures a blessing as it is a reward from the thrice holy God, but it itself a blessing of the new covenant and a delightful fruit of the Spirit. God first gives us good works and then he rewards us for them. Grace is not obscured by God's demands for holiness, but is highly exalted as we see it decking the saint with the jewels and clothing him with fair white linen. All this is a sumptuous array being a free gift of mercy. So essentially what Spurgeon is saying is once you've tasted grace and you know the Lord, holiness is going to be, become more and more part of who you are. It's going to be what you press toward. It's going to be one of your goals to be holy because our God is holy. Now, we're never going to hit the mark perfectly. But remember when I taught you guys on 1 Thessalonians 5, if you were here for that teaching, I told you, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks and everything, our habit of life exhortations. You're not going to be able to do them 24-7, but they should be overarching themes of your life that you rejoice, that you pray, and that you are thankful. That's where the Lord's moving us. That's, that's more the norm for us. Write down Titus 3, 3 through 7. I'm not going to read it right now, but I think you can get the order there. Saved by grace, good works become a result of his saving grace. This is the generation, 6, of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob. And then we have a Selah in the song. That's always a pause in the music but it's a way to say pause and ponder what you just took in. Just take a moment, pause. If you're ever reading a psalm on your own, this is a good uh, time to just pause and reflect. Pause and ponder. Uh, the Bible gives us some exhortation to meditate. Not on your navel, because you all you're going to see is fuzz in there, probably. Okay, Not chanting, you know, no, biblical meditation is to think on God, his attributes, his word, his will. It's to ponder him and what you just learned. It's kind of like, like this. Have you ever read your Bible and you're like, what, what did I just read? <laughs> and some of you do those one-year Bible reading plans. I've done those before where you, you got to conquer, you know, a psalm and a proverb and an Old Testament passage. And you got through it and you're on track but you don't know what you read <laughs> or not much of it. So you might want to slow down a little bit. It's, this is not a race uh, and let it sink down. That's the idea of a selah, a pause. To desire communion with God is a purifying thing. 
says Spurgeon, oh, to hunger and thirst more and more after a clear vision of the face of God. This will lead us to purge ourselves from all filthiness and to walk with heavenly circumspection, close quote. He's simply just saying, if you want a formula for practical holiness, you've got to redirect your eyes to God's face. And I think it's proper to say something like this as a Christian. Lord, I'm seeking your face right now. And some of you are like, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly what it means, but I know what it, it means. I'm seeking intimacy. Like if I brought someone's face to me, and this would have to be someone that's close to me, obviously. If I, if I said, could I have your face? And I moved their face in front of my face, and we were doing a face-to-face Hopefully I'd had a breath mint right before that, right? Okay. We're having what's called an intimate moment, right? An encounter. And if I look in someone's eyes and, and we connect that way, and let's just say for a moment, it's my wife. And our faces are close. And let's just say that we have a moment to kiss and to look into each other's eyes. That's intimacy, relational intimacy, and that is a little bit of what this means. When I say, God, I'm seeking your face, what I'm saying is, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you. And I know you search me, and I want to know you. And so I'm seeking your face. I, I want to know you. I want to be able to look. Everybody with me? Look inside a little bit to the degree that I can do that and give you a human illustration, if that helps. Final stretch, third plank, if you're taking notes. The ascent of the true redeemer or the anticipation of the king of glory. Or you could say it this way. Here comes the king of glory. Notice this is the last stretch of the psalm. Lift up your heads, O gates. So now the psalmist David begins to talk to the gates um, Gates in ancient cities were for protection and also to let people into a city. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Eight, who is the king of glory? The Lord, there's Yahweh. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. When Jesus was on the earth, in the last week of his life, he approached uh, the city, Jerusalem, the time was Passover. Jesus had the disciples go get a colt and he began to ride into the city down the Mount of Olives. So if you, how many of you have been to Israel before? Just raise up your hand. Okay, so if you, if you go to Israel, you get a moment where you're on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So you're, the Mount of Olives is east of the temple. And when you look west, there's the golden domed Muslim shrine. So that's what we're talking about. So what happens is you can follow the Palm Sunday path. You go down the Mount of Olives, and it's really a hill. And you go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's always up. So when Jesus was here, the king of glory, and he was in the last week of his life, he came during Passover week. And he rode into Jerusalem on something that's called Lamb Selection Day. It's when Israel and the families of Israel would pick a lamb that they would keep all week and sacrifice on Friday of Passover week. 
So Jesus rides in. He rides down the Mount of Olives and he begins to ascend the holy hill. Because the holy hill is Mount Zion. It's where the temple is. Uh, by the way, if you do research on the location of the Temple Mount, it's where David bought a threshing floor from Ornan the Jebusite. The temple was built on top of a threshing floor, which is where we get the word holiness. Interesting? So that's the temple. So Jesus, the King of glory, he rides down the Mount of Olives, up the holy hill, comes into the city, and Jewish tradition says when the Messiah was going to come, during the feast, they would keep the, the temple door open to receive the Messiah. Read the psalm again. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Let him in! And here comes Jesus, and the people start singing, Glory to God in the highest, peace, glory to the King of Israel. And the religious leaders are like, Quiet, shh, stop it. Don't say Hosanna to him. Don't say Hosanna in the highest, quiet. And Jesus says, If I tell them to be quiet, I'm telling you, the rocks, they're going to start singing. And you've all heard the joke before. It would have been the first rock concert. Hosanna, the rocks. Hosanna, Hosanna. If that's how a rock sounds. Anyway, and then Jesus comes into the city and the whole city, city is stirred and he comes into the temple courts. And you know one of the first things that he does? He cleanses the temple. Open the gates. Let the king of glory come in. And the religious leadership was like, no, who do you think you are? Who are you? Who do you think you are? He healed the, the lame and the, uh, I think it says the lame and at least, at least the lame, but maybe the blind as well, and the temple courts. And the little kids started to say, Hosanna to the son of David. And the religious leaders were like, quiet. Shh. 